0: Greetings everybody out there in Dreamland. Namaste and shalom. Iron sharpens iron and a friend sharpens a friend. You are listening to the Beyond Top Secret Texan. I am the Beyond Top Secret Texan. Broadcasting to you from the coast with the most. The Gulf Coast. The third coast of Texas. The darkest truths from the darkest web need to be told. And you must listen to the beyond top secret Texan. Greetings everybody out there in Dreamland. Namaste and shalom. Iron sharpens iron and a friend sharpens a friend. Thank you all very much for tuning in to another broadcast of the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast. I am the Beyond Top Secret Texan. I am broadcasting to you from the third coast, the coast with the most, the Gulf Coast of Texas. And it is my pride and privilege to be doing so. Thank each and every one of you out there in Dreamland listeners, new and old. Thank you every single one of you for supporting me, supporting this channel. Uh, follow linktree slash Beyond Top Secret Texan to the link directory for all my social media and web activity that is up to date, current. Thank you very much for those that have joined the community, uh, joined the conversation either through Telegram or by following on Twitter or by uh, becoming a member a sponsored member for the Anchor FM community. Remember, the Beyond Top Secret Texan has hundreds of episodes. Over 300 episodes, currently on its 8th season, has been running for 3 years, consistently, 3 years, full time. And the majority of those episodes, literally everything before Season 8 and everything before 2 months ago, is archived and is exclusive only to the paying members, the paying subscribers to the Anchor FM page that is through Spotify that is a service provided by Spotify that is Spotify's podcast service software recording uh, studio app etc that is Spotify it's creation that is anchor FM the link is available through Spotify the anchor FM website also has the link up as well that will give you exclusive access to hundreds of episodes. Thank you all very much to those who have become members, become subscribers, and those that will in the future. Thank you all very much for supporting independent journalism, independent truth, and independent media. to get on with these episodes, and I am trying to streamline and perfect this art that I call Paranormal Investigative Journalism. I will jump right into the topic of today, of this episode, however or whenever you are finding yourself listening to it. I've come along this incredible testimony, eyewitness report first-hand testimony about a UFO crash recovered in Peru this is by Lance Corporal Jonathan Wigant and is from his time and service in the Marine Corps To repeat, today we're going to be going through the personal testimony of Lance Corporal Jonathan Wigant on recovering a UFO crash in Peru. As far as I know, this is exclusive to the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast. You can find this story nowhere else, not on YouTube, not on any video service like Rumble or Rockfin, and on no other podcast except the Beyond Top Secret Texan. So I begin. The testimony of Lance Corporal John Wigant, October 2000. When this testimony was created and submitted, Lance Corporal John Wigant enlisted in the Marine Corps in 1994. Stationed in Peru to provide perimeter security to a supposed drug traffic radar installation, one night he and two other sergeants were told to secure a possible crash site in the forest. When they arrived, they saw a 20 meter egg shaped UFO buried in the side of the gorge. He was called back from the craft, arrested, handcuffed, and threatened with abusive interrogation techniques. One of the men told him that the interrogators basically did what they wanted and that they were not under constitutional law. Wiegand believes that the UFO was shot down by a HAWK missile. H-A-W-K missile. I enlisted in the Marine Corps under the delayed entry program in July of 1994 while still in high school. I enlisted, of course, in a delayed entry for a year or so. I went to boot camp on the 18th of June. I graduated the 8th of September, 1995. I was on guard duty that night so I was already up and it was my shift. We got up at about 3 or 4 in the morning and headed out about 5 or 6 hummers. We drove to where we needed to go and from there we had to hump through the bush. So we got there at about 6 or 7 just when it started to get a light. Well, we found the area real easy because there was a huge gash in the land where something had crashed. It didn't break anything. I don't know if you've ever been to a crash site where you had trees and they were just broken like in half. Everything was burned and it was like something had almost cut warm butter with a knife. It was like something on fire or had some kind of energy like a laser and had cut it. It was really strange. Anyway, it was in the front with Sergeant Allen and Sergeant Atkinson and we were 10 or 20 meters ahead of everyone else. We all had maps and radios and compasses so we wouldn't get lost. We were the first ones to see this thing. It had gone up the hill and then off of the side in the ravine. This was about a 200 foot ridge, at least all solid rock. It was buried in the side of a cliff. Anyway, we didn't go straight up. We went to the left and walked up to the top of the ridge and that is when we saw the craft. This was a huge ship and when I first saw it I was scared. It scared the heck out of me. I didn't know what to do. It was really confusing. We all climbed down and it was buried at about a 45 degree angle in the side of the cliff there at the ridge. This was a steep cliff. It was straight up and down. It was dripping a syrup like liquid. It was everywhere and it was greenish purple and it kind of fluctuated. You would look at it one time and then you would look back at it again and it was almost like it was alive and changing or moving. But every time that you looked at it, you saw a different shade of greenish purple, different than when it looked before. There was one light on the ship that slowly went around the machine. And the machine, I could hear it because it was still functioning and it had like an electric hum to it. It was like a bass. Like say if you unplugged an amp from a guitar, the kind of deep sound, the, the hiss, and it kind of fluctuated. And then finally it just cut off and everything just seemed to stop. Went real quiet. When I was looking at the craft, it was buried, so I could see the back of it, and there were these things that looked like vents, sort of like fish gills on the back. I couldn't see around the other side, and I guessed that it was the same way on the other side. Again, this liquid that had came out of the ship got on my camis, and it discolored them, and ate them almost like acid across the time we were there. It ate some of the hair off my arms. I didn't know that until later on. I was down there with the ship. There were three holes in it. I assumed that they were hatches, but there was no way to tell. They were not flush with the main body of the craft. They were, I don't know, a few inches below. I know that there was one on top because you could slightly see it. I don't know about the other side. There was another hatch the same width and diameter of the top hatch and it was kind of crooked to the side and it was half open. I didn't see any lights or anything coming out of it, but I felt this presence. It is real strange. I think the creatures calmed me. It was weird, and I think they were trying to communicate with me, like, I guess telepathically, before I saw them. It is really weird, and I don't believe any of that stuff, or I didn't believe any of that stuff. It is like basically sitting in your car and turning on a radio station and that is just noise, and turning it up real high. That is what I heard when I first got in there. It was voices that I didn't understand. Like if someone was whispering to me, but yelling at the same time. Who's there, I asked, and looked around in my immediate surroundings. The voice said, It's not your imagination. The ship was about 10 meters in width and about 20 meters in length. That is just an estimate from what I remember, but it was huge on the inside. It was shaped like something between an egg and a teardrop. It looked really aerodynamic, at least in the shape. I was close enough to make out detail on it, but it was just smooth. There were bumps and notches and things on it from the crash. It was really organic. It was almost like art. It looked like something that someone made in a shop. It looked like it could have been handmade, but out of what and what materials, I don't know. Definitely nothing like titanium. It looked metal, but it didn't have any reflection on it. The sun is shining on it and I could see the different shades of the craft and it didn't reflect anything. I guarantee that if I had shown a flashlight on it, it wouldn't have reflected it. I wanted to get inside because someone, the creatures I think were calling me to help them. Everything was going to be alright. I was so mesmerized and into it and suddenly Sergeant Allen and Sergeant Atkinson were hollering and cussing at me to get the fuck out of there. I think they were scared and they didn't want me to get hurt. I don't know. And they were really pissed off at me. Basically what happened was after we climbed back up, the Department of Energy, Department of Energy people were there. They knew about it so I don't know why we went there still to this day. But anyway, I was arrested. I had all my gear taken from me by men in black camis. They had no name tags. They were not military police. They were older men, probably in their late 30s or 40s. I was at the site probably 15 or 20 minutes. We were the first people in the position. Then there were other people. They had containment suits. They must have just gotten there. I don't know because we were down in the gorge. When we climbed up, there were the guys in the black committees. They took me and put me in a cot that they had. They had me cuffed both hands down, and they had my legs tied together with these plastic fasteners that the police use. They are kind of like cuffs, and they took me in this huge 47, and we took off. I don't know how long I was contained or subdued. I don't know. My guess is two days. They had Lieutenant Colonel from the Air Force there, but he did not properly identify himself during the interrogation. You have got to sign these papers. You never saw this, he would say. He would tell me I don't exist, and this situation never happened. He would tell me if I ever told anybody that I would just go missing. He was real abrasive. Just a real asshole, I guess is the best way to put it. They had me segregated with Air Force personnel for approximately three weeks, and after that I was sent back. At this facility, I saw there were Americans, but there were a lot of other nationalities there. There were even Chinese. I think Germans were there. A lot of other people were there at this base. All they did was take me to the interrogation room and back out, but I saw and heard different languages. I sat in there for, I don't know, 15 hours with a light, and then maybe 15 hours without a light. Then they put this light in my face again, and they were yelling at me. I couldn't readily identify any of these guys, but I knew one of them was at the crash site because I recognized him when he was in black fatigues. The group, my section, was about 8 to 10 guys, but just me, Sergeant Allen, and Sergeant Atkinson saw the ship, and only I entered it. We were the only ones that saw it. Now the others saw the uh, the crash site where it came through the jungle. They saw that, but they did not see the ship. They didn't go into the ridge. Like I said, we were 10 to 20 meters in front of them, and we radioed that we found it, and everything was fine. It was in late March, early April of 1997 when this happened. And that means the Department of Energy was there before the remaining members of our platoon reached us. On this ridge and they prevented them from making contact with us. When I got back to the U.S. it was late March early April of 1997. I approached Sergeant Allen about it. He was married and has about one or two kids and I went to his house on base. He got all upset and threw me out of his house. He said he didn't want to talk about it. I guess they scared those guys too. You've got to understand I can't speak for the rest of the armed services, but in the Marine Corps, everything is monolithic. I didn't want to keep my mouth shut about it. I told 1st Sergeant Powell about it. I don't think that he is still there anymore. We are talking three years ago. There was no debris that I saw, but there were big gashes in the rear of the aircraft. What it looked like as it had been hit but maybe by a surface-to-air missile. This is what I think happened. We shot it down. The other guys at the radar facility knew it was flying. I knew that these aircraft were flying because I had been in the command center there at the radar installation, and I heard a couple of women there in the Air Force talking about aircraft flying in and out of the atmosphere at Mach 10+. So these aircraft were flying around there. They would re-enter the atmosphere. I believe that the higher-ups knew it was flying in the area. Basically, the radar was sitting on a hill and it rotates. There is a command bunker that is built under the earth. It looks like Star Wars in there. It is totally air-conditioned. It is really nice. There are computers, and they have the control panels that control the radar, and I guess they are linked to other sites and get other data coming in. Well, one night, I was there checking people going in and out. They have IDs, and I would check them. So these two girls came walking out, and they were talking. Well, we have these aircraft flying again, and the other girl said, yeah, they are coming in and out of the atmosphere, and they log all these flights coming in. Later, a man comes and gets the logbooks, and I had to sign off for him to take all that. When you have objects that re-enter the atmosphere and then stop on a dime and then turn around and go exactly the opposite direction, that is kind of strange. Meteors don't do that. But was this something rare, or was this something that was happening all the time? Was this something strange, or did they expect this? Oh, this was happening all the time, I believe. There were about three or four instances where I was on duty... There, at the same Air Force officer came around to get the log books. So these crafts were tracked from this particular radar and were logged in. I guess the reason they were taking them is that they didn't want people to know they were tracking these aircraft. Although I am just assuming that. So I think they knew this craft was coming in. We can't identify it. It is violating airspace here. They could have radioed the Peruvians and said to take them out and they shot them down. I am confident that when I saw the aircraft, it had been hit by something. Something had taken it out. I am not doing this to make money or publicity or anything, but I need to tell the truth. I think it needs to be told. I think people need to hear it. Whether they agree with me or not is of no consequence I wondered if those facilities were built for the intent to track UFOs or other objects and their cover was there to track drug aircraft. I don't know, but from what I understand, they were doing a whole lot more than just tracking drug aircraft. They had laser range finders and all kinds of high-tech stuff that I have never seen before. I couldn't really explain it. The laser rangefinders looked like big telescopes, but they had them in a bunker and it was able to rise up and zoom around 360 degrees, just like a turret. Just a bunch of weird stuff. The base I was taken to was definitely something like NATO, or some multinational deal like NORAD. I keep going back and really thinking about that. Why are all these guys here? Why would the Chinese be concerned with drug smuggling in South America? What were the Germans doing in Peru? I know for a fact that our government is the one that is importing drugs. I think that this command center was permanent. This thing has been in operations for a long time. At the crash site, there were about 30 of these guys with hazard suits on, at least. They marched right by me as I was being taken away. They were marching to get down the cliff. I guess they were there to check this thing out. I think they were in there and they took everything out and they shipped it back home. The behavior of these people was like this is routine and these guys were squared away. They knew exactly what they were doing. They had been trained to do this stuff before. That was the atmosphere. Professional, cold, unassuming, Fast. We are here to do a job. Get the fuck out of our way is basically the attitude. These different agencies are on their own. They don't obey the law. They are rogue. Do I think that this is a project that goes up through the government and everyone has a piece in it? No. I think these guys operate on their own and no one knows what they do. It is so easy to do that today and there is no oversight, no control. They just do whatever they want. There may be guys up there that know about it, but they are not going to say anything. Because if they say anything, they are done. Thank you all very much for listening to me recite this eyewitness testimony of Lance Corporal Jonathan Weigant of the Marine Corps disclosing the UFO crash in Peru. that not only he witnessed but actually entered until being detained and interrogated by members of the deep state specifically department of energy in the shadow unilateral earth alliance base where he was stationed Thank you all very much for listening to a broadcast of the Beyond Top Secret Texan. God bless you and your families. Peace out.